You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. There's gold in them thar AI hills. That's right, and you well know it, the artificial intelligence gold rush is on, which means that there's likely lots of rush development happening right now, and lots and lots of data feeding the development engine. Data that needs protection, so that it doesn't wind up in the wrong hands and get used for nefarious purposes or misused or mishandled by the likes of well-intentioned developers or users of the technology. Privacy and security controls must be correctly put into place and do their thing. And if they aren't, the implications have the potential to be vast and severe. This brings us to today's Trust Issues guest, Diana Kelly, who's the Chief Information Security Officer at Protect AI, a cybersecurity company focused on AI and ML systems. And Kelly's been thinking about AI and machine learning since well before today's gold rush. We take a dive into the space and, among other things, how the principle of least privilege extends to AI and ML and figures into the AI chatbot equation, because data must be protected. We also talk about privacy implications and repercussions from using AI and ML field platforms and tools and what it all means for cyber threats and cybersecurity itself. Kelly, among lots of other highlights, is a sought-after keynote speaker and co-author of two books. She's also one of Cybersecurity Ventures' 100 Fascinating Females Fighting Cybercrime. She's been driven throughout her career by the notion that technology is a wonderful tool to help humanity when it's used right. So let's get right into it. Here's my talk with Diana Kelly. Diana Kelly, thank you for coming on to the Trust Issues podcast. Really great to have you here. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. You've had a really interesting career. You've been with companies that include Microsoft, IBM Security, and Symantec. You were CTO and co-founder of Security Curve. You serve on a number of boards. You're a frequent keynote speaker, conference panelist. You're just starting week three of a new gig as the CISO at Protect AI. To start things off, before we get to today's focus, which is artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, Have you had a guiding principle throughout your career and how has it led you to your latest role with Protect AI? Yeah, I do. I don't think that I realized it was a guiding principle until years later, but starting from when I fell absolutely in love with computers and and connectivity and, and what could be done, which was in the late 70s, I just got very excited with understanding what these systems could do, what technology could do for people to make our lives easier and how that technology works. And so fast forward now from you know the late 70s when I'm a kid and discovering all this to when I'm actually in my first um, couple of professional jobs in IT. And I had worked my way up to being the uh, global manager for a startup in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We had nine offices around the world and we were trying to really take advantage of the technology. One thing we did was we started to issue our patches and make them available through an FTP server. So I set all this up. It was great. It was wonderful. Look at what we can do. And then I realized I hadn't understood all the security related to setting up an FTP server and somebody had popped it and saw it, realized it, 
corrected it very quickly. But at that point, I was like, I need to not just focus on building these wonderful networks and systems for people to be able to use and leverage and have benefit from. I also need to protect them from these bad guys who are trying to attack. This is the 90s. People told me it was crazy. Security wasn't going to be essential. But my guiding light of technology is a wonderful tool to help humanity when it's used right, then met part of the used right is to protect it from being misused by criminals. And that's really what's motivated me throughout my entire career. And as you could imagine all of that, if we take that to where we are with AI and ML, these are really powerful tools that can help humanity in so many different ways. And yet, We've seen no end of all the different ways that they can be misused, anything from what gets a lot of attention, like deep fake. But there's also things that people are not seeing, such as getting misinformation from the tool and trusting it and what could be the impact of that, or even not understanding if the data the tool is being trained on is poisoned and what that can lead to with inaccurate or manipulated responses. So it's been the same through line. It's been different technology throughout and different focus points of security has changed and attackers have motivations have changed, but it's always, how do we make sure that, that humans can get the best use out of technology? It's always seemed to a certain degree when it comes to technology that we're living in the future, but now more than ever, it really does seem that we are living in the future, particularly with everything we've been hearing and seeing and reading and talking about around particularly AI, but also ML in the last few months. And I know you've really been uh, deeply focused on it for, for quite some time now. As a cybersecurity professional, how are you approaching the technology and its rapid evolution and now rollout? I think it always sort of has to be through multiple ways that we approach. There's one, which is the user, the average user of these tools. How do we make sure that they're educated about the best way to use the tools, make sure we get the best tools into their hands, for example. Then there are the people who manage and run companies, not the ones that make the AI and ML, but maybe consuming it or doing some analytics with it, and ensuring that they, as the owners and leaders of the organizations that they are the stewards for, that they understand how they can best use this technology, but also educate their employees on the best way to use the technology too, so that everybody's on board. Uh, corporate environment has to be driven by the leadership to help guide people with usage, which is a little different from commercial usage and consumer usage. And then the last thing is the creating of the AI and the ML and the developers and the builders and the engineers who are working on these systems and ensuring that they have not only the understanding about what can go wrong so that they can build resilient systems, but also that they have the right tools to help them build those systems in the most reliable and accurate way. Hmm. So from an employee training standpoint, do you feel that organizations themselves understand this well enough to be able to, to train their employees at this point? I think there's still a learning curve. One thing about AI and ML is that when we look at predictive analytics, intelligent analytics, a lot of what machine learning provides us, we've actually been in use with those for a very long time. And as far as educating leadership on how to use these, say you're a, a financial services company and you've got a robo-advisor, you've got quantitative analysis on you, know, buy this and sell that. The human observes this system over time and starts to see, is this helping us? Is this not helping us? Can we tune it a little bit? 
leadership, I think, does understand that it really is about accuracy and ensuring that we use them in the right way. Now, as we transfer this to the big boom, which happened with ChatGPT, the large language models, and now we've got this whole gate opened of whether or not our search engine is going to not give us a list of things, but just give us the answer, for example. Or if you're a CEO and you're about to acquire another company, it's like, how do I write this email? In that case, I think that there does have to be additional understanding of what these tools can and can't do. If you ask a generative AI that's broadly trained, and that may still be getting trained on what's available out there on the internet, then you have to, with a grain of salt, look at the response to make sure if it's accurate. And if that sounds like a little bit like an Ouroboros or like a snake eating its tail, it's because there is some element of it. If you ask the system a question that you absolutely do not know the answer to, how can you check whether that answer is accurate or not. So you want that tool to be highly accurate. Now, in some narrow use cases, we're creating smaller LLMs that are very focused on a particular area. For example, when I was at IBM, we were doing this with IBM Watson for cybersecurity. And it was very honed on cybersecurity and understanding cybersecurity so we could train it and make sure it was accurate in this fairly well-defined space. A front end for a search engine that could be asked any question is probably not the best tool if you genuinely don't know the answer to ask one of these systems that is broadly trained that may not be highly accurate to ask it for an answer. There's the education point. We have to help leadership understand. I'm sort of dancing around using this term, but I, I should use it because it's the one that people are hearing the most, which is hallucinations. And the reason that I don't love that term is that it makes it feel a little bit like the algorithm is is sentient and the information being responded to back from that prompt is inaccurate. That's really what's happening. One of the other things that you mentioned is, you know, if you're plugging in information from an enterprise organization standpoint for whatever it may be, an email, or you're looking to feed some essentially data in there to, to figure out a way to either do something or say something or whatever it may be, that is potentially sensitive proprietary data that you don't necessarily want to be plugging into these platforms. Is that safe to say? It's absolutely safe to say that we need to understand the privacy implications and repercussions from use of these tools. We try to anonymize them. We put them into these, these big uh, repositories, but very often you can kind of reconstitute information from bits of information about somebody. There's also the privacy concern of who's running these models, who's recording the information that you're putting into the model, and can you trust them? Trusting the organizations that we're giving data to, understanding that some of us are saying a lot more to the chatbots than we ever said to a search engine. Right. We've sort of been down this path before with social platforms and search to much discussion. And this has been a very, very big subject for, for a long time. How does adding chatbots into this whole conversation when it comes to privacy either magnify that discussion or, or change that discussion? And how much do we know at this point when it comes to privacy and chatbots and, and AI? Especially around the LLMs and the chatbots, a lot of us are learning about 
what the real privacy implications in the long term are going to be. I mean, there are some real obvious ones that come out, which is when you have massive amounts of data that are available, is that data protected? Is that data anonymized properly? Can it be reconstituted, for example? So things that we've been looking at, but we have to continue and, and focus on in the AI space, especially now as there's this kind of a bit of a gold rush going on. So there's this sort of pressure to train, make these LLMs smarter, and often that means a lot more data. So there's there's that continued view on, on privacy that we've had as we, we aggregate large amounts of data, but it's just accelerated right now in the AI world as people are just really rushing to make the best use of this technology. Right. We're talking about privacy in the context of what that means for cyber threats and cybersecurity itself and, and all the different implications there. So from a security standpoint, how should we consider both how AI and AI chatbots are built and how they're used and how vulnerable they are to attacks? If you're a company who's going to adopt it or you're a consumer who's going to use it, I would look for solutions that are coming from organizations that you feel some level of trust with. I'm by no means saying that, oh, if Google made it or Microsoft made it, you're fine. Nothing bad could happen. That's not the point. The point is that these are companies that users have been interacting with enterprises have trusted for many, many years. They do have strong security and privacy controls into place so that these are known quantities. I'm not saying that there's no risk. It's just that there's a, a different kind of risk as you look at that than if you look at, for example, using a chat bot from an organization that you've, you've never heard of, that's maybe been an only business for a couple of weeks and who knows might be located in a nation that has been known to be looking for data from the United States, for example. So then how can protection and controls be built into AI and ML correctly? So I think one of the great things here is that we've got a leg up and that we understand what a secure systems development lifecycle needs to look like. And even though AI and ML are a different kind of development lifecycle, the transferable understanding of how to create a strong and resilient life cycle is there. And you start at the very beginning with what are the requirements? What do we need this system to do? Is, does it need to be accurate? Does it need to have privacy and protect user information, for example? So looking at AI and ML creation and deployment as part of this life cycle and putting the security through it, creating an architecture and understanding the security implications of that architecture, how it's going to be deployed, threat modeling. What's the use? What are the misuse cases? And understanding things like failure modes. That's one of the things I, I did in the last couple of years was I did a class for LinkedIn Learning on failure modes that are both intentional, which is what happens when an attacker misuses or tries to go after your AI and ML, you know, like poisoning the data. So it's going to give inaccurate responses. But there's also unintended failure modes. The unintended ones are poor design, not doing complete testing, for example. So putting all of this into creating rigor within your, your development lifecycle for AI and ML, there's got to be a lot in between the dev and the ops to make sure it's going to be enterprise ready. Well, looking at ML ops, right, and there's a machine learning lifecycle, and then inserting the security into that. And a specific case would be ML. Uh, very often, the engineers will work within Jupyter Notebooks. 
And within the Jupyter Notebooks, they'll have code, they'll have data, they'll have analytics going on in, in there. So that it's really becoming in the ML space a little bit the way that traditional developers were working inside of IDE. Um, now you've got folks working inside of Jupyter Notebooks. Well, what's scanning that Jupyter Notebook if there happens to be PII in there, or if there's a secret, like a password or an API key that's being stored in that notebook, what's scanning for that? We're not scanning for that at this point. So bringing the security in ML SecOps and creating this lifecycle where we are security aware throughout the entire time of creating and deploying. Um, and you know, there's a lot more there, but just I'll just plant that seed. And then in the use too. And that means um, how we use the, the tools that, okay, now we've got, if they did ML SecOps, they should have a very robust tooling that they can deliver. And then that relates to things like, if you can't trust that this is going to be 100% accurate, don't ask it a question that you don't know the answer to if you need a fully accurate answer, for example. And things like what kinds of queries, what prompts do you put into them so that people can use these tools again, how they're intended in the best way for the organizations and for the people who are using them. Yeah, you had some really interesting examples in your LinkedIn learning course, like uh, how to get an autonomous vehicle to recognize a stop sign when it's faded. It just goes to show you all these little variables that are so consequential in anything related to this kind of technology. That's it, you know, and that goes to that accuracy. I mean, we do focus on chat GPT, but yet there's the accuracy there with the visual model and the autonomous driving of the research that I quoted, they had put some tape up onto the stop sign, but what they were trying to do was to emulate graffiti, which is very, very common. The point that the researchers were trying to make is that we see the stop sign and it's eight side and it's red and it's kind of in a place we expect it. And our brains just do this wonderful connect the dots. Thinking back, I've looked at stop signs that other than that they're in the right place and in the right shape between how worn they've gotten from the sun, how many stickers and graffiti have been put over it, and maybe it's raining that day. Let's be realistic. It really doesn't look that much like the traditional nice bright red octagon with stop and, and white big block letters. As we talk about these failure modes and where they can fail, we do need to think about where we're using AI and ML, what it's being used for, and what could go wrong. And that, again, is why threat modeling is, is so important and creating a, a systems lifecycle around AI and ML. How are AI and ML being used by threat actors to wage attacks? And how is the technology itself under ongoing attack? Some of the ones that have gotten a lot of noise already are using uh, some of these generative AIs to create code. So some people were like, you know, hey, create a website and it you know, generates code, but find a zero day exploit, for example, write me a proof of concept for an attack. So writing the code that now the, the attackers may not even have to write it themselves. Again, they need to worry about the accuracy, but that is, is one way that it's being used. Another way is looking at those deep fakes I was talking about and generating better or more believable videos. Also generating and being able to do the research on somebody to create a better phishing attack. Phishing is really dependent on our believing that we should take this, this email seriously. We should do what is in the email. And the way that you can get people to do things is if you can get them to trust you 
and sound authoritative. And actually, if you if you talk to any of these chat box, they tend to respond very confidently. So have them study and provide a, an email that would be fairly likely to get somebody to click. That's another way. And, you know, so there's a little bit of bringing it into the social engineering case in these. What should organizations consider when it comes to third-party vendors and data as it applies to AI and ML? So if you're looking at adopting the vendor itself, it hasn't really caught up fully yet, but looking at one of the certification programs like SOC 2, which is very popular right now, to make sure that at least this organization is thinking about security, thinking about data protection, thinking about asset management, all of these really core baselines um, that should be done. And I think that in future, we'll see SOC sort of advance out a little bit more to start to really cover some of these aspects of the ML because the dev life cycles in there, I think it's going to enhance to the ML life cycle too. So it's a good certification. Most companies have it. If you're working with a company that's got that, that's a great start. You could also ask them if you want to go a little bit deeper, what they've done for their ML security life cycle so that you can understand what they're doing specifically around their AI and ML development. And then if you're a company that's looking at either giving your data to a company or using data, or even one of the pre-trained models that you can get from the, one of the model zoos, like Hugging Face, is to take a deeper look at where that data comes from, what's the provenance of it, is it biased, has it been cleaned properly, these pre-trained models, people are adopting them because they're great to get a really a wonderful head start. But some of them have Trojan horses embedded in them, which can give attackers a view into your data that you put into the, the model or potentially even into seeing some other things going on within the environment that you're training that model. So being careful both to understand any vendor that you adopt in their supply chain, but expand to ML and also with the data, being very careful of what data you're using and also what pre-trained models you might be using. How does the principle of least privilege extend into AI and ML, and how does it figure into the AI chatbot equation? A big area of least privilege around the AI and ML is the data. Who can see the data? Who can you know, change the data? Who can see the models? Who can impact what's going on within the, the life cycle itself? So you want to protect that access the way that you protect it implement it in a different way because now we're in the cloud. So it's, it's similar with AI and ML. So you want to make sure that you're not giving people access to the models, um, to the data, if they don't need to have the access. You also want to have good old classic separation of duties with things like training. Don't train on production data if you if you don't have to. Um, and I say that with, with some caveats because as you look at what some of these use cases that are being designed, there's going to be some, some blend and some crossover, but make sure that you, when you're just doing the testing, who has access to that data, that they need to have access to that data. And as you go out and you deploy these systems in production, a lot of them, the way that you, you get access to the model is through an API. And you can do a lot of nice lockdown business need to know on access to the API. Does it need to be queryable by the world? Maybe, but a lot of times, no. We need to take all the lessons we've learned about least privilege and business need to know and apply it in these new systems, understanding that now we're, we're creating and building in different ways that we created and built in the past. We talked about predictive ML earlier. How close are we to sentient AI 
And as a security practitioner, does it excite you? Do you have concerns about it? Truly sentient AI is an interesting question because we as human beings, I don't think we understand our own intelligence entirely. And I'll give you an example of that. If you go back to the 1940s and 50s and sort of the Isaac Asimov time, there was this belief that we were going to have robots that were going to do pretty much all the chores that human beings don't like to do. I don't know of anybody that's got a Rosie the Robot typed out there who can't do laundry, right? This ended up being fairly complicated and we just don't have any solution like that. And I don't see anything that's coming on the horizon for that. Now, what's part of the, the issue there? The issue is that some of the things that we take for granted is that are actually really, really hard. And I use this example a lot, but you know, picking up a glass, for example, that's a lot of complex calculation that needs to go on. Right? There's some real math involved with grip strength, with force of, of the muscle movement. It's a whole lot of stuff. Human beings, we do this all the time. Well, it turns out when we try and get machines to do something like that, we have to now go deep down into all of the different complexities that are related to an action like that. So that's what I mean about sentience, is that we don't necessarily know all the intelligence even that we have. So as we're trying to create sentience, we're going to create true intelligence. And I think we're still learning a lot about what intelligence actually means. What else do we need to get into those systems to make them truly sentient? There's almost a metaphysical, philosophical conversation too. What does it mean to have a mind? There are a couple of very, very deep AI researchers who have started to be concerned about this, but most of the scientists in the fields are not concerned about the general sentient AI. It's really more about making sure that the AI that we have available now, the narrower AI, is used in a responsible, reliable, and ethical way. I do think there's a lot more steps towards true sentience and a lot more about intelligence that we don't understand for ourselves. So I think that's sort of the intersection point we are at right now societally. It's, oh my gosh, ChatGPT can pass the bar. And I know people that are so smart that couldn't do it. But passing the bar is not the same as having general sentience and intelligence. A bunch of really interesting points there. I appreciate that. If you were to beam yourself back to when you were just starting your career, what's most surprising about your career journey and the field itself? I think most surprising is that I was actually able to succeed in it because <laughs> I, I didn't think that technology was going to be a career for me. And anybody who thinks maybe you don't belong in tech remember that, that not everybody who, who has succeeded in tech thought that we belonged here at the beginning. So I just want to encourage people to support yourself because a, that's a really important thing. But the biggest like surprise within the industry since I got started is just how pervasive and everywhere it is. I got excited about technology in the late 70s. I thought it was the future, but I didn't realize how it was going to be literally everywhere. I never thought it would be something that was going to be at the level of defending nations and ensuring that they can communicate and defend themselves at times of war. I mean, that's that's pretty intense. Or even making sure that we can be safe as we're driving our cars. Diana Kelly, thanks so much. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for listening to Trust Issues. 
If you like this episode, please check out our back catalog for more conversations with cyber defenders and protectors. And don't miss new episodes. Make sure you're following us wherever you get your podcasts. And let's see. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, drop us a line if you feel so inclined. Questions, comments, suggestions, which come to think of it are kind of like comments. Our email address is trustissues, all one word, at cyberarc.com. See you next time.